It's time to stop guilt and start demanding. It's time to stop being PC and start being transparent and authentic. It's time to get real. Prepare yourself. It's time for Crazy and the King. Welcome to Crazy and the King. Hey, Torin. So we'll start with, and again, uh, one of those instances when I absolutely, like I'm looking around my office, Julie, I absolutely wish that we were publishing in real time, that we were recording in real time, that we were doing video uh, at the moment that we're recording this and that it would immediately be published. Because yet again, we are dealing with uh, the frustration, the anger, the interruption of life uh, at the hands of police in Minneapolis. And, you know, last week you were, or, or a few weeks ago, uh, as it relates to Ahmaud Arbery, mm-hmm. you were instrumental in our having that conversation. I want our listeners to know that. We didn't have that conversation because I wanted to do it. Like, I wasn't going to bring it up. I, I absolutely was infuriated, but I wasn't going to bring it up. I wasn't going to use this platform, I said, maybe I'll use my Sirius XM platform, but I'm not going to put that responsibility on Julie, if you will. I, I don't, I just, when I thought through it, I wasn't even really giving it the space. You gave it the space. This week, I said, we're going to give it space. And I think every week going forward, you know, I think I need to be true to what I say when I say that we have to be transparent and honest on the platforms that we have. Um, yeah. Yet again, we got to, we got to deal with, and, and, and by the way, we'll say his name, George Floyd in Minneapolis, George Floyd in Minneapolis. How are you? Yeah. I mean, one, I, I appreciate you, you allowing me to have that conversation with you. Uh, and, and I do think, from that experience, I learned a couple of different things. One is that we need to be held more responsible. Um, white people need to hold each other more responsible for our lack of a voice and our lack of, of allyship. And I appreciated a, a push I got to be more vocal and to be more demanding and was humbled and, and also a little embarrassed by, you know, the, the very kind reaction I got from the black community when we, we did some public posting about Ahmad Arbery because it, it made me recognize, I think for the first time, how much white allyship is lacking and how, just the small activities of bringing some social awareness, which to me didn't didn't feel anything like good enough, was a step in the right direction. And and so you know, for me, it was a really wa- a big wake up call. And I wanted to make sure that I didn't just have a conversation, put a video up, do that kind of social media thing. You know, I went and I connected with our Indianapolis um, Black Lives Matter group and I donated and, you know, am trying to be a more visible ally listening when I'm supposed to and, and doing what I need to do that actually leads to more action. And so, 
this week has been another tough week. We're dealing with a unfortunate similar situation in Indianapolis right now with the death of a young man. Um, and then the, the whole thing um, with Minneapolis this week, I, I just, I, I have to be honest, like I haven't even been able to watch the full video yet because it's just, you know what I mean? I've chosen not to watch it. Like I'm, I'm absolutely not going to watch. I mean, I refuse to watch another snuff video of black men, black women, uh, people that are black and brown. Uh, and quite frankly, I'm not going to watch any video uh, of police killing an unarmed individual. I'd like to say white people, but, you know, I haven't seen one. Uh, and so, you know, I, and I don't know if that's only because it hasn't been published, but I haven't seen one. And so I, I just absolutely refuse to watch any more videos. And quite frankly, with that one being the length of duration that it is, I've, I've yeah. heard numbers of five minutes. I heard someone say 10 minutes. I, I don't know how long it is. I'm not watching it. So, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, it will. And I think that you're obviously fully within your right to say that you're not watching. I think every white person needs to watch every fucking time, mm. beginning to end. Because if we're, if that's, if that's what it takes to get outrage, if that's what it takes for you to move off your ass and do something, then, then you need to watch. Um, but it also, I think, gives us a lot more ways to open up conversations, like with the story that we saw last week with the lady calling the police on the black bird watcher. Did you catch that? Uh, I believe her name was Amy Cooper. His name was Cooper as well, right? Yes, they're they're not related, <laughs> but apparently, apparently, yeah, apparently, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, and like we get outraged, right? We get outraged, and and people wake up and they they take action and they demand action when a a, a black man is killed, which is is appropriate. But what we need to do is start getting outraged when white people, white a white woman in this case feel that they have the privilege to treat a, an African-American man in their space that way. Because what if he had not, or what if the police had gotten there and she was hysterical screaming on the phone about how he was threatening her when he's a good six to 10 feet away from her. We, we don't know what the result of that is, but that woman who let's be uh, very blunt sees herself as a part of the resistance, as a person who supports Joe Biden, who is a liberal Democrat. And that was her behavior. And oh, oh I didn't hear that. So, oh, yeah. Oh, wait a minute. So she she publicly declared her political leanings. Oh, yeah. OK, yeah. cool. And, and, and you know what? And I don't need to spend 35 seconds on that. Because the bottom line is racism doesn't know a political boundary. Racism no. does not have a political border. Like, you know what? Uh, we're not going to be a racist because our racism stops at democracy. Right. Shit. <laughs> like, for exactly. real. And I mean, and again, you know, that's kind of like the, the Joe Biden comment, you know, you oh, ain't God. black. And they made the little T-shirts and now they want to call yeah. him racist. But, you know, we got a president 
who says that Africa is a shithole country. We got a president who said that people coming from Mexico uh, or, or judges that are uh, of Hispanic descent can't. You, you understand what I'm saying? We got a president who has we got a president who said there's good people on both sides in Charlottesville. Yeah, for real. Fuck yeah. that. It's yeah. not the same. So trust me when I tell you, I ain't even trying to even trip on the five minutes that she's trying to tell people that she's a Democrat. Cool. We no. love it. Let's keep it pushing. Keep going. Yeah, apparently you got some learning to do. Ah, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I and so really what I wanted to kind of explore is I found um, an article called The White Space from the Journal of Sociology of race and ethnicity. Okay. And it's from 2015, but I, or 2014, excuse me, but I think it just fits so nicely into this package. And I want to stop and ask Torn, do you know what white space means? Have you used that terminology or that lingo before? Well, not from a uh, medical or cl- clinical standpoint. When I've heard white space, it's typically uh, in the music industry where you can't really hear noise uh, in the design space. It's the cleanliness uh, the area that has not been interrupted by color, uh, by line, by whatnot, but I've never heard it from the clinical or the health standpoint. Yeah. So it, what white space is basically is that it is white neighborhoods, restaurants, hospitals, schools, anything that you can think of in terms of a grouping of people that are primarily white and that black Americans enter and have to adjust their behavior or um, their means of communication to be safe sometimes, to also gain respect and to um, just kind of, as a condition of, of your existence, of their existence, you have to go to places that are white space. Oh, and so you didn't need to go to the journal for that. You could have just went to work. I mean, yes, I'm to, learning. You could have <laughs> just went to some people's workplace. I mean, I, I'm waiting for like this incredible definition. Yes. I'm very familiar with that because it's part of what we live. Like literally right. when we go to places, so, but but I can also understand how it would be categorized as something different. But in context of this story, continue. Yes. So and I think I think that's the point, right? Like right here, white girl learning. Yeah. And so when I read these things, it's like, oh, yeah, that that's the thing like that we need to to put a label on and and help me understand for my conversations and my behavior. Right. And. Traditionally, then, if you if you kind of spin it on the other side, black spaces, right? Yeah. White people go into black spaces because they choose to, yeah. and they don't need feel the need to alter their behavior. It feels normal and kind of cosmopolitan, I guess I would say, um, for them, for us to be in those integrated communities, and you know, one. Let me. I want to stop because you brought up Joe Biden. I think this is such an an interesting point when, and I'm probably not going to say this right. So you can yell at me and correct me online or on air if you need to, but like with Joe Biden, he was having a conversation with Charlemagne the God and he got 
comfortable, right? He got kind of casual, having that conversation, spitting back and forth. And he said something that just was not the best, right? I don't, I, I, I think I understand how he meant it, but it was just like, eh, you're a white guy, you can't say that. Um, and I, I do think from that perspective that one of the, the issues that white people have is that we do alter our behavior in some ways when we're in black spaces or when, when black people are in white spaces. And both of those things need to change because those, those two pieces, whether good or bad in terms of what that behavior is, um, those are keeping us from, from fully coming together. A black man has to alter his behavior for life-saving purposes, right? White people need to alter their behavior so that they don't embarrass themselves and, and, and feel dumb um, in, in front of, of their peers or, or their um, cohorts. And so I think it's, a, it's just a really interesting conversation of not being comfortable in each other's space, but that as white people, what we need to do to change our comfort is completely different than what you have to do to be safe and to be visible um, against, you know, black stigmatization. Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, again, I think back to the movie uh, White Man Can't Jump, 1992 movie with Wesley Snipes and, mm -hmm. and Woody Harrelson. You know, Woody didn't work hard to to be black. You know, he didn't try to necessarily be something that he wasn't. He he simply found a way to fit in. I think about one of it. it, it listen, I don't know where you're going to place him on your list. Top five, top 10, one of the greatest, uh, you know, top 50. But Eminem is certainly a respected rapper. Like I would hand him a microphone. I'd go to the bar and fix me a drink and I'd come back and I can guarantee you that he has put some fire on whomever he was battling or whatever birth he was rocking from Detroit, Michigan, eight mile. Eminem is yep. not working hard to show up as being black. He's going to just simply show up. And so you're right. I think that Joe got a little comfortable. Uh, he tried as a 70 year old or, or 70 plus year old uh, man to white man to be something you know, cool. You know, it, what was worse than the comment to me, you know, the comment was what it was. I kind of, you know, I can, I can appreciate where he was uh, attempting to come from, you know, the, the bubble was worse than that was his apology. You know, when you get to the fashigity and, you know, fizzle <laughs> and all of that other stuff, I'm like, yo, Joe, for real son, you 70 something years old player. You can't be that cool. Like Torin at 70 is still going to be fly. <laughs> like I'm gonna have first of all, shoes gonna be tight, gear gonna be tight, brim gonna be tight, language is always gonna be tight, and I'm gonna walk up into a white space like what? You understand? Like I don't I've never been afraid or 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 unwilling to be in a space where I'm unexpected to be. I grew up in Davenport, Iowa. So <laughs> while I might inside be a bit uncomfortable, true story. I might be a bit uncomfortable inside. I might have a bit of trepidation inside. The warrior of me is not going to show that. I'm showing up. And if I have to be in that place because it's uh, a place that provides me with some service, post office or whatever, 
It could be a church. You know, I may have to take a donation or give a donation or give a talk. It could be a room of folks in HR or TA where I'm talking and, and there's a handful of black folks in the room. And I've been there. Thousand folks in the room, less than 20 people of color in, in the uh, entire auditorium. Rest of the room is absolutely white. And I still stand at that mic and deliver the same smoke that I deliver any other time. You know, I've never let that stop me. So I do agree with you that it is different for some people to adjust. And some people can do that a bit more readily. But Julie, I think what it comes down to is we accustomed to it. Yep. And that's unfortunate. Like, I really don't even say that as a badge of honor. Like no, we you shouldn't so have to be. We are so accustomed to forcing ourselves or finding ourselves in a posture of adjustment so that we can not ruffle feathers, so that we can, you know, be a bit of a shrinking violet, so that we can get in and, you know, not necessarily seem to be the arrogant one, the all-knowing one, the angry one, and some of the other categorizations uh, and classifications that have been placed on us. It's hard being Black. Trust me, I ain't changing it and wouldn't want to change it, but it's hard being Black. Uh, and, and I think that that leads so perfectly into kind of my last point slash question for you is, you know, I think that one thing that the journal I read talked about a lot is the the size of the black middle class, right? So right now the, the black middle class, upper middle class is as large as it's been in our American history. And you who are, are a part of that space and then regularly in those white spaces where I'm, I'm there with you or, or in kind of the same grouping, um, you know, the the way the media and advocates and even sometimes the conversations that you and I have on this conversation about blacks in different socioeconomic classes, right? Like how do we have conversations of, of advocacy for those, um, you know, those people who are very impacted by the downturn in the economy, by COVID, by these things, without creating that sense that Torin, as part of, of the Black middle class, needs to be stigmatized in that same way when he's in those white spaces. If, if that makes sense to say it that way, is that a failing of the advocacy class? Is it similar to what we talk about in terms of disability when we are talking only about philanthropy and then we are creating a, a universal stereotype for people with disabilities that that's the only part of us that, that matters. I think there has to be some sort of reckoning with the way we converse. Yeah. Well, I mean, it could be a failing of the advocacy class. It most certainly is a failing of uh, some black people, some black people that have capitulated and walked around and said, you know, um, embryonic stuff uh, to the tune of slavery was good for us. Um, people that have reckless statements like Denise Williams from Apple years ago when she said that a room full of 14 white men is diversity. Um, and she may be a well-meaning individual, but I'm using it as an example. When you have people like Candace Owens who says that 
uh, we didn't see the other part of the video uh, as it relates to Amy Cooper. And so there, there was certainly something that transpired before the recording started. And so therefore I'm a free thinker uh, and, and, and what Mr. Cooper did was probably wrong. It probably uh, invoked Amy Cooper's actions. Uh, and what I say to that is, again, that could possibly be true. That could possibly be true. But when you see that video and you see the Oscar winning performance that Amy Cooper put on, it doesn't really matter what happened before that, because the only thing that I heard was a less than conf. That's not the right word. Let me choose my words carefully. Mr. Cooper, in my opinion, the way that he was breathing in that video didn't show me. It showed me a person that was afraid. It sounded yes. like a person that was afraid. And I, I, don't agree know with who, that. I don't know who he is. I don't know his temperament. But there is like, I, I got to tell you this, Julie, there is not too many white women that are going to stand in front of me, say something to me, whatever it is that they are saying. And they're going to have me breathing as if I'm afraid. So I don't know what transpired before, but what I do know is what I saw. And what I saw was a person who absolutely put on a performance. And I'm going to judge the engagement by the performance that I saw. And, and, yep. and to me, it was malicious and it was willful. And it could yep. have ended up in that man losing his life. So Yes, there is a failing on the advocacy class. There's a failing to a degree on black people who support this bullshit. And there is absolutely, absolutely, absolutely a failing on white people who are not willing to speak up. The last group that I'm not mentioning are the people that are infracting it, the people that are acting in the racist act. Listen, I'm going to give them time to figure out when they decide they want to be better humans. And for some of them, that's never going to come for whatever yeah. reason. But it's the silence. It is that silence. That is the gap between our being able to move from where we are today to making serious progress. Thank you for sharing that and the transparency in this conversation. It, it's always, I think, incredibly meaningful to me and to those that that listen that are are still in their learning and and figuring out how to do this better all the time. Yeah, so you know what, I'm going to ask you a question um let me ask you this. Do okay. you ever feel that gnawing or nagging feeling that you need to be a let's say good mom? I don't want to use the word better. Good. I'm very intentional. A good mom. Well, if you know a mom, you know that the moment that that child enters the world, you have a gnawing feeling of failure um, pretty much all the time for the rest of it. And and women, I mean, as a, as a mom, yeah, I, every single day I have a nagging need to be a good mom and sometimes a better mom. So then what's your take, you know, since we've been in this pandemic now, we're in week number nine. You didn't mention that in the beginning. I actually kind of got you. <laughs> um, so what's your take? You know, when you think about where we are in terms of the pandemic uh, and you, you know, you kind of survey the landscape of your friends, 
your digital friends, your colleagues, especially those that are women and mothers, um, how are they handling it? How are they handling managing home life and work life, particularly for those whose work life has collided with their home life? Right. Um, I will say I've been impressed in, in a couple of different ways with with my colleagues and, and the working women in my life. Everybody seems to a little bit have taken off that that shroud of the Instagram mom, right? Like, it's okay that your kid is in the background and he needs your attention for a minute. It's okay that you may need to reschedule a call because this is the time that you're doing e-learning. And women, especially not being afraid to say that to another woman in that professional world, that veil seems to have slipped away a little bit. And, and I really appreciate that um, and, and respect it because it's not an easy thing to do. It's not easy to say, I, I've got a family commitment right now. I can't do this. And that's wonderful. What I, what I also am seeing, though, is even though mom and dad are both working from home, still the majority of the child care in, in a lot of cases, certainly not every case, but the majority of kind of the childcare household duties are still falling on mom, even though everybody's in the same space and there's no reason for dad's job to take precedent anymore because we're all in this same little, you know, 2000 square feet together. So let's pretend like uh, Chad will never, he'll never <laughs> hear this, uh, this pod. Let's pretend like he'll never hear it. <laughs> okay. How, if you were in that situation, you, you, you're not uh, because no. you have fully capable uh, children, incredible children, by the way. Uh, by the way, how'd they do in the swim meet a couple weeks back, a couple months back? I don't know if um, they got the final, final results. Yeah. So they, they ended up going to the state meet um, and had a top 15 finish there. So they did awesome. They were, right, I'm cool. very proud of them. Awesome. 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 Yeah. I don't think I got the last last because all I think all of that happened right before COVID set in. Okay, cool. Um, so, so if you were in that scenario and, you know, Chad was not supportive or less than supportive as a father, do you think you could have addressed it? I know it's hypothetical and I try to stay away from those questions, but do you think as a working mother, you would have been able to say, Chad, look, for real, I need some more help. Like I need an extra hour out of you. Yeah. Uh, I One thing that, that we have that is different is we're a blended family. So we've had some opportunity to mature in our, our relationships and, and our childcare and, and that partnership that we have. And so kind of, if I look back at the less mature Julie, um, I, I think that what I would have been challenged by was having a conversation that was kind of un unemotional, especially when you're exhausted and the babies are little and you're trying to work and you're trying to balance all of these competing obligations I think women tend to stay silent until we sort of explode. And while now I'm mature enough in my relationship and in, in my own self-confidence to say, hey, this is, I, this is what I need today. 
And if you can do this for me, I think that levels me up enough to be able to kind of carry the load I'm taking now. Um, But I also think going back to your original point is that as women, we're taught that that's a failure, right? If we can't keep a perfect home, raise perfect children, make a six-figure salary and, you know, mentor on the weekends and still bake cookies for the PTO, everything that's not happening is a failure that reflects directly on on the, the mother and not on the father in the same way. And so I think we're also hesitant to ask for that help because we don't, we don't want to. We don't want to feel that that failing, even though it's not a failing at all. Um, and I, I think I've come to terms with that sometimes. Um, and it took me a long time to get there. Yeah, I honestly think, Julie, you know, from, you know, just considering where we are right now with so much happening virtually and on, you know, web-based meetings, I honestly feel like if, in fact, we we were able to, as we are peering into uh, people's personal lives, their homes, uh, that if we saw fathers changing diapers, if we saw men changing diapers, if we saw men um, corralling the young children, uh, you know, if, if we saw them saying, you know, keep the noise down and not only the women, I think it would have an impact in other departments in our organization and that we would tell some different stories going forward, that we would look at our recruitment marketing and our employer branding. We would look at that a bit different, that we would consider different narration when we are on YouTube doing company videos and using companies like Skill Scout and companies like All True. We would tell different stories when we are engaged, if in fact we could convince them to really focus on a different gender and not just the woman. Yeah. I mean, just focus on the parent and what the expectation of a parent is and make those, you know, role models or those stereotypes, both genders starts to change a conversation sometimes even without words. Yeah. Yeah. It's important. And so the reason why I asked Julie, all of those questions for you all as listeners, uh, make sure you check the link out uh, down below. We put a story in that I found on the Lily which is uh, affiliated with the Washington Post. And it's really about a working couple and their three-year-old son talks about, you know, how the mother had started a tech company, was a CEO, had a co-founder, the father. He also was in the tech space, but he had taken some time out uh, and was, you know, kind of looking for the next move. And then of course, COVID hit and, you know, everybody thought that everything was fine because he would be able to just simply watch and handled the three-year-old son. And that lasted all of four days, Julie, all of four. Um, that kind of killed me when I read yeah. that. I'm like, really, yeah. man, get it together. All, all of four. That's what I said. I was like, yo, for real, you can't handle a three-year-old. That was yeah. so incredible. It was incredible to me. Like, and, 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 you know, and here's what really gets to me. You know, we talk about parenting, but you are of privilege enough where you can quit your job you can talk yep. about taking six week vacations. You can talk about not uh, finding a new place of employment until pandemic. Uh, uh, what is this? COVID is is over. This is the story. Like you have all of this privilege, and as a man in your late thirties or forties, you can't handle a three year old with some soggy diapers. 
Yo, seriously, we got to send the kid back to daycare because your board or your stay-at-home dad act isn't working anymore. Yo, anyway, yo, yo, sorry. Man, yo, <laughs> man, put on some skinny jeans or something. Do something that'll make you a man. I mean, take off them bad jeans and put on some, put on some oh. skinny jeans. Put on some parachute pants. Remember parachute pants back in the day? Put oh on, yeah. Put on I some parachute. Yo, put on some parachute pants, man. Put on, put on, get a Rambo video and put a bandana around your head. Something that'll make you feel like, yo, I can do this. I can conquer a three-year-old for more than an hour so she can do work. Like it was absolutely incredible. So listen, we're going to put the story link in. <laughs> it's on Lily. I, I'm telling you, I, the story was the bomb. The father in the story, her name is Amy. I'm glad they named her. I'm I'm absolutely glad that they did not name him because I would have really went on Twitter trying to find this dude. Like I got to see oh, yeah. this profile. Um, but needless to say, check out the story, man. Hey, Jew, you got any name drops? Because I I loved how we flowed today. Do you have any name drops for us? Uh, just really quick um, name drop to my husband Chad Sowash, whose birthday oh. was last week, oh. and. For his epic uh, white man rant against the failure of the Fortune 500 to uh, hire diverse CEOs. Yep, nicely done, babe. You got to listen. Go out, chadcheese.com, chadcheese.com. Check it out. Make sure you take a listen. My name drop, Charlotte Marshall and Brian Adams, authors of Give and Get. Uh, The book is titled Give and Get. I know you can find it where books are sold. It's on employer branding. Uh, absolutely a good read. I remember when they were talking about doing the book, this was probably last May or June. And uh, it recently came out maybe three, four weeks ago. And I finally got my copy in the mail. I'm about to open such up. And even though I'm not in employer branding, I'm always in the posture of learning. So shout out to you, Charlotte Marshall and to you, uh, Mr. Brian Adams. All right. All right. Oh, we are running long this week, so you want to take us home? Yeah, man. Um, So listen, I close reminding each and every one of you to think about sharing our pod with your digital tribe. Make sure you find your voice. Stop playing. Like these Amy Coopers in the world, no cover. Bad policemen, no cover. Like they get absolutely no air cover. And the only way that we're going to make progress is when you you as the listener, you find your voice. You can catch me on Sirius XM channel 126, 1 p.m. on Sunday, 1 p.m. Eastern on Sunday. For now, Julie and I are ghosts. See ya. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. 
Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.